Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host today. And as always, I'm joined by my two co-podcasters here in the studio, 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. How's it going? Doing okay? Yeah. Your, your beloved Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, of whom you've been a longtime fan, uh, forced Game 7. You feeling good? Big, big game coming up. Uh, yes. Yes. they get this one, they'll get the next one, then they're going to close this thing out. It's, it's Game 7, Kyle. Okay. <laughs> and uh, also on the line from Chicago, we have 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, Neil? How are you? Doing good. How about you? Good. Good. I, I at least know that we're in Game 7 now, but... Trying to focus on basketball as much as I can just because the league has been so interesting so far. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to be happy for the World Series to be over so I can kind of turn whatever percentage of my attention has been spent on baseball, uh, devote it to basketball from here on out. But in the next hour or so, we are going to be all about basketball here in the lab. On today's show, we're going to be talking about whether the NBA's new rules to prevent teams from resting stars is working. Also, we'll dig into the improvements made by a trio of power forwards, each of whom is suddenly putting up MVP numbers. And finally, we're going to bring you a small sample on just how wacky and unpredictable the season's first couple of weeks have been. So let's start the show. Over this past offseason, the NBA voted to allow the commissioner's office to fine teams who violate the league's new guidelines about resting players. Teams can't sit healthy players for high-profile games, and fines can go up to at least $100,000 to certain teams. Uh, there are also extenuating circumstances in which teams can't rest multiple healthy players on the same game and maybe encouraged to rest them on the road instead of at home. Uh, Greg Popovich, the coach of the Spurs, uh, was kind of irked by league rules in the past, uh, especially when it came to resting his stars during national TV broadcasts. He said he was amenable to the changes, but he's also not clear clear on who he can and cannot rest in certain situations. So I wanted to open up uh, this question to you guys because this is often the space in which we talk about you know, league-wide rules and whether they're working and what could be done to maybe make them better. So have we seen any cases in which you know, these policies have come into play, and uh, is it too soon to say maybe if they're working or not? But do you guys think that they'll, they'll work, or what do you guys think about this rule? Well, when I look at what this entails i think it's going to end up being a lot a lot like the the dress code rule where it's there and people see it it kind of puts a scare into people because they don't want to lose money but at the same time i don't think it's really going to be enforced all that heavily unless we see a really really egregious case of it i think that you know i think the one time the spurs got in trouble for it a few years back before there was a policy i think that was for like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. it was a really really heavy fine Popovich was not happy about it, but in this case, it just kind of seems like something where couldn't a team just say that someone is hurt or kind of suggest that someone is hurt and then get around the rule that way, and I also feel like the league would be uncomfortable having to decipher whether someone was truly healthy or not when a team decided to sit somebody out, so I don't think any team is going to get fined for this unless it's a really clear-cut, egregious case. Right. I mean, it's the it's the death of DNP old from, <laughs> from Popovich about Tim Duncan or whatever that was, uh, but like... At the same time, like Papa is like, oh, I guess, uh, guess if they don't if they don't play and like we get a fine, we'll know he's a star, or whatever. It's like, I get it that it's like squidgy language, but you know who your stars are because you put them on your media guide. Like, <laughs> like every team knows like who the fans are coming to see. So I mean, in in practice, kind of at the at the margins, like there's little like wiggle room, but but also like those usually aren't the guys who are getting a night off. So so I don't, I don't think it's gonna like come into effect and just. 
as a fan, like I go to games, I go to Brooklyn Nets games, I go to Knicks games. I would never buy tickets to the Spurs. Like this came up a couple years ago, like where I was like, oh, I'm going to a lot of games this year. I haven't seen the Spurs. They're in town. And I was like, of course I'm not going to go see the Spurs. And like, sure enough, no one played that night. Yeah. Because why would they play against the Nets? So it actually is annoying. And uh, that's why the other, like, I guess, guideline is that if you are going to arrest someone, uh, it should be for a home game, not a road game, because like a road game might be the only chance like fans are getting to see that player. Right. And that part makes sense. Uh, my question is, it kind of sprang to mind this idea of, you know, in fantasy football, you have at the very beginning of the season, at least the can't cut list, this kind of elite group of players that whoever the commissioner is, or maybe you let ESPN or Yahoo or whoever uh, decide who uh, are the stars, basically, that you can't dump off in trades and kind of throw off the balance of, of your fantasy league. Is there uh, going to be a case where maybe the NBA thinks about codifying who are stars for the purposes of sitting or is that too far uh, or is there you know if you are the spurs or maybe another team that's trying to emulate the spurs until they do that and until they kind of you know get rid of that squishiness like you mentioned kyle is it, are you gonna see teams try to walk up to that line and try to test the boundary of this uh, and see how far they can push it before they get fined I mean, I would love if they just came out and said, here's who we think are stars. Here are the like, stars. And like, that would be very controversial, but also kind of juicy for, for the players to argue about, too. No one loves petty like NBA and NBA fans. Like, that's why, like, the All-Star game this year where they're just going to pick teams, like, everyone is very excited for that and to see what happens. Like, so, yeah, if, like, they came out in a list and, with a list and, like, Draymond wasn't on the list somehow, like... When would we hear the end of that? Yeah. look. Think about how angry they get with our NBA rank stuff at ESPN, let alone the league actually having an official list of who they determine is star-worthy or not. But beyond that point, too, I mean, the, the thing that made the Spurs so interesting about this every single year is that a lot of times they win without their stars playing anyway. And so that question comes into play. If you win a game without your stars, how do you really have the right to find them for not playing their stars when they were good enough to win without them and they're just giving them a, a night off? Yeah, I guess as long as you win, no fine. It's, it's just if you lose because, because you're tanking the game and sitting your stars, that's when it comes in. I mean, but it's also just being transparent that like they're an entertainment product and like the kind of contortions that they get where they're like taking this really wildly hypocritical stance on like issues tends to be when they pretend like they're not an entertainment product. Like people aren't aren't coming to see if like the Spurs can grind out a win. Like they're coming to see Manu Ginobili or they're coming to see Kawhi Leonard. Right. Okay, so let's leave it there. Uh, that'll be something that we keep an eye on throughout the season, probably talk about it when uh, the first Greg Popovich fine comes in for, for flouting this rule. We're going to move on and talk about a trio of power forwards having MVP-type seasons, but first, let's have a word from our sponsor. In need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. That's why ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. 
Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash the lab. One word. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash T-H-E-L-A-B. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash the lab. It's looking like a banner year for power forwards in the NBA this season, so let's talk about the three who have maybe made the biggest leap since last season, and by whom I'm talking about Blake Griffin of the Clippers, Aaron Gordon of the Magic, and Kristaps Porzingis of the New York Knicks. Uh, Two of those three are among the top ten MVP candidates, according to Basketball References, MVP probability metric and Chris Stapps can't be far behind after averaging more than 29 points per game this season. Uh, the thing that makes this trio really interesting to me is that they've all improved in pretty different ways uh, and it's also kind of unclear how sustainable each player's start is. So let's begin by talking about Chris Stapps Porzingis since you wrote about him this week Kyle uh, and maybe let's just talk about how he has adjusted his game in the absence of Carmelo Anthony because now the Knicks are basically his team for better or for worse. Right. So like the big thing with Chris Stapps is that this doesn't seem like he's just off to a hard shooting start, like he's doing the same things but just getting better results. He's doing different things. He's moving differently off the ball. He is just attacking the rim differently. He's using the spot up jumper uh, to, you know, show and go and like just like attack the rim. And these are things like he did before, but he's doing them more and like he's just like he's also just bigger and stronger this year like we all made fun of him for his uh ridiculous workout videos but like he came back bigger and stronger and it's shown on the court this is somebody that doesn't have to look over his shoulder as much as he did before you you think about Carmelo Anthony and kind of the big presence and shadow that he creates for a team but also even last year Derek Rose um the real time that you got to see Chris Stepshine last year is when he was playing with Brandon Jennings Someone that was more interested in getting him the ball than taking his own shot. And now this guy is out here. There's literally no peer of his on this roster at this point. And so it's his to kind of win or lose. And you're not seeing him split shots. The thing that I saw when I covered the Knicks and covered his first season there was just how dominant he could be for certain stretches of the game. And then just go seven, eight, nine, ten possessions without even touching the ball in the fourth quarter. That's not going to happen anymore. And I think now... Like I said, win or lose, he's going to have the shot to take, unlike before. Right. And so, like, a big part of that is the questions were, does is his frame going to hold up for, for the pounding of if he does, you know, play the whole game like that, just dominating? And it's just six games that he's had to do this so far, but his scoring load is ridiculous. So he's already just way over his old uh, usage percent. But if we're not using that because, like, he has a really low turnover percent because He's not really handling the ball. He's just like a more traditional just scoring big man at this point, uh, which is fine. He's 22. Um, so if we're just going by how much he's shooting, how much he has to shoulder for the scoring, he's leading the league like by a mile with like 33 uh, field goal attempts per 100 possessions, which is essentially Russell Westbrook last season. I, I agree totally, Kyle, with the idea that we've got to see how he holds up because when you look at his rookie year and then again at last year, he has always kind of created this level of hype, maybe not to this extent, but hype in general, because we're kind of blown away by how good he looks to start a season. But he's still really adjusting to the lengths of these seasons because over in Europe, he wasn't having to do this. And frankly, with this sort of usage, it's going to take more out of him to be able to do it every night. 
he slowed down so much in the second half of each of his first two seasons and just didn't really have as much left in the tank. Numbers fell off, wasn't able to really push guys around as much. And so that's what I'm interested to watch is how long can he hold this sort of play up. Five out of six to start the season is really impressive with 30-point games, but I'm curious to see how long he can hold up like that. Yeah, and it's pretty incredible to see that level of usage out of not a Russell Westbrook, not a, a perimeter ball handler type of initiator type, but out of a forward who, like you said, Kyle, isn't doing a lot of ball handling. In fact, he's actually doing less ball handling than he did last year uh, in terms of, you know, he's only averaging 34.8 passes per game according to uh, player tracking data versus 40.8 last year. And yet he has this enormous hike in usage rate and it's basically all just extra shots. He's not turning the ball over more, which is pretty incredible too. And he's become more efficient in his shooting. Yet he's also not shooting any more threes, which we'll talk about some of these other guys uh, that we mentioned are changing their game in that way. He's just taking a lot more shots at the rim, uh, and, and he's getting to the basket a lot more than, than he used to be. And it's easy to forget that he is just 22, and we would expect a, a player who kind of came in as more of a raw, you know, not as strong as he uh, projected to be for his frame player, grow into a role where he could maybe take more of a pounding and attack the rim more. Yeah, and so him getting those all those shots at the rim, just getting into better positions this year, is again part of just him being like stronger, being more aggressive into the you know establishing deep early in the possession. But it's also his teammates just looking for him more and finding better ways to to get it to him. So in the game against Boston, which was his one bad game so far, where Horford basically shut him out, the the Celtics really tried to get the ball out of his hands. They tried to uh, they fronted him a little bit, but really they just like shoved him out of the paint and. What the Knicks started doing was just like lobbing the ball like 20 feet in the air and just like letting Chris Stapps like gather it and like that's your entry pass. And last year that wouldn't happen. They would just say, okay, the ball's not going to him. Like he's he's shoved out there. We're going to swing it and see what Melo has to do. And this year they're just being like, okay, we have a giant seven foot three guy. Let's find some way to get the ball to him. And, and they're doing that. What I want to see now from him is how he handles games like the Boston game going forward. Because he's stronger, and you can see he's stronger, but there's more to it than just strength. It's quickness and being decisive in what he wants to do with the ball. And when you look at some of the things from the first couple games, Boston included, sometimes he takes that split second. And that's kind of the big difference we've seen with Giannis this year is sometimes kind of you can almost see him thinking through what the next step is going to be and what he wants to do with the ball. And Chris Stapps isn't used to being doubled nearly as much as he's going to see this year, and in some cases tripled because of how tall he is. And so if teams can make him be the playmaker and, and kind of a setup guy for other players on his team, that might be the challenge for him. And the next step for him is trying to figure out decisively where he wants to go and what he wants to do to set up other teammates. It's always funny when guys, uh, and like it's totally understandable that like a double team in the NBA is hard, but it's always funny when just like, okay, so the other team had the most predictable reaction to you kicking their ass up and down and like you're just not prepared for it like Blake in the Warriors game like they really started hard doubling him uh with Clay Thompson running over there and like he's already got Draymond on him and it's like oh so 
we don't we don't have a plan for this. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good uh, transition, Kyle. Uh, uh, one last note on Porzingis: if he is, you know, now that he's facing actual double teams at at kind of the designated superstar rate instead of whatever was left over after they were not interested in doubling Melo last season, is that maybe passing is kind of the area where Porzingis will get better and maybe uh, have to get better based on the amount of attention he's getting because his assist rate is sort of incredibly low for a player that has the usage rate that he has. Uh, It's 5.2% this season, and that's just microscopic uh, compared to some of the other players in the league. Yeah, it's it's the difference between being Hassan Whiteside and like even a Boogie Cousins who like just it hasn't shown out in the wins, but like he just does much more for you. Right. Uh, so let's move on and talk about uh, a player who actually does have that passing component in his game. And you just mentioned him, Blake Griffin of the Clippers. A, a lot of people are noticing that the Clippers, hey, this this team doesn't have Chris Paul, and yet still somehow they're winning with the exception of uh, Monday night against the Warriors. Uh, And so Griffin has kind of elevated himself also into the MVP conversation, and rightly so, based on the way he's played now carrying this team. What do you guys think is what he's done this season versus maybe last season and how he's adjusted to not playing with his own superstar teammate uh, that departed over the offseason? It feels like to me he almost has like a clean-eating diet with his shot selection this year. The guy has basically just decided, and I've I've seen this numerically and statistically for years, look, I'm a good shooter from 17, 18 feet out, 20 feet out from two-point range. Why not just take that extra step back and really perfect the idea of becoming a decent three-point shooter with my foot right behind the line? He's knocking those down at a really healthy clip so far, and he's basically replaced the old shot that he used to take from 19, 20 feet he was the guy taking the most shots of that type in the league to now basically cutting those out of his diet entirely. And so replacing that one type of shot with the other and getting the efficiency out of it, but also kind of replacing some elements of Chris Paul's stagnation in their offense. And, you know, someone that is not Chris Paul as a passer, but is not a bad passer at all and is actually a great passer for a big man. They're not losing that much so far without Paul because Blake Griffin has played so much better without Paul on the court in the last couple of years. And it's been really important for, for him to be holding that together, too, because the the pick-and-roll numbers and, like, the the Clippers have been the, the pick-and-roll team in the league over the last several years. And this year, um, they're just not. The, the numbers with uh, Blake Griffin, when he's the screener, still very, very good, still near the top of the league. But any other screener, so in the past when DeAndre would set a screen and the Clippers would go through their actions, didn't matter who was taking the shot, they were still you know, getting very good outcomes. Because you had to worry about the lob and you had to worry about him just going to the basket and going over the top, right? Absolutely. And it's just Chris, Chris was in position to you know, get you that. And also, J.J. was out there spacing the floor. This year, um, even with some of the same players like Austin Rivers still on the team, just much worse outcomes when anyone else is setting the screen besides Blake because Blake has all the gravity. The The defenders just are stuck to him in a way that they're not to anyone else, including the ball handlers. Like, Lou Williams has you know, not gotten it done so far. They've, uh, they lost Teodosic really early in the season, and he, um, he's going to come back, give them some shooting. But none of the other players who just, like, have the ball in their hands, like, have defenders sticking to them the way that Blake does. They're daring the other players to shoot, basically, because... Pat Beverly, as decent a shooter as Pat Beverly is, one of my favorite players in the league, if he's the guy that has the ball and it's a decision between staying with him 
and potentially backing off just a little bit and making sure that DeAndre Jordan or someone else doesn't beat you with a lob, you're going to take it. Gallinari is the one guy that maybe you worry a little bit about as a shooter there. But Austin Rivers, I think his hand has been messed up for the majority of the season. You're not really too worried about these guys beating you. Um, J.J. Redick is the big difference maker there. Just someone that constantly had guys in his face and guys sprinting to try to catch him around the perimeter. Not having him there makes a big difference. It'll sound blasphemous, but I kind of wonder on some level long-term if the idea of not having Redick there and kind of what he does for the spacing in that offense makes more of a difference given what we've seen Blake is able to reproduce from Chris Paul. Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, if Gallinari is only going to have a 47% true shooting percentage so far and shoot about, what, 27% from three, that's really going to put a monkey wrench in that offense, I think. Yeah, Gallinari's like gotten decent shots. He just hasn't made any of them. And like I always bring this up, but you know, Mike D'Antoni called him the best shooter he's ever seen. Uh, whatever. So we, we don't have to talk about Gallo. But, <laughs> but Chris was talking about uh, Patrick Beverly. And the thing about Bev is... Uh, he is like he's definitely the beneficiary of all that uh, attention that is being given to Blake, but it's not just in the in the pick and roll in the half court. Uh, so Blake gets uh, has permission to push the doll down the floor. Like he he can start the break. He's always had permission, but everyone does now. But when Blake is doing it, uh, because there's all these cross matches, or just because Blake beats his man down the floor, the the opposing point guard is the one who has to stop the ball then. So the the point guard will go meet Blake, and uh, Beverly just runs to the corner, runs to the wing, and is just spots open. Uh, of everyone on the roster, like Bev seems to be the one who's just like best at finding space right now. It's like something that JJ used to do for them a lot. Uh, Jamal was pretty good when he was there at that. Like he wasn't shooting as well by the end. So Beverly's filling that role for them that they just don't have on the roster anymore. And that seems like kind of a classic point forward uh, slash, you know, kind of uh, point guard, but defensive minded point guard who can shoot combo, right? Like you, you know, think about Scottie Pippen uh, with the Bulls and, and kind of the shooting point guards that those Bulls teams had. Or to go to another Phil Jackson team like Lamar Odom bringing down the ball and then, you know, having Derek Fisher in the corner or something like that. That does seem to be kind of a model when you do have a point forward type and Blake is kind of assuming that role now a lot more without Chris Paul to do a lot of the, um, you know, the floor generaling, if you want to call it that. Doesn't it seem like the league is just kind of about to be overrun by those sorts of guys between think about all the guys we've talked about as MVP candidates so far, really Giannis, Blake Griffin, Porzingis obviously has that capability too. Uh, We look at these guys that can handle the ball the way they do. And I guess it's a conversation that we've had already about the positionalist basketball, but the the cross message that they create, um, and, and the positions that they put defenses in is just kind of terrifying if you're a point guard and you see Blake Griffin coming down the court. What are you realistically supposed to do other than just foul him? Yeah, I wonder what the what the reaction from defenses will be to kind of counter that if you do have this glut of point forward types. Like those were always the players that growing up, that's who you wanted to be. That it makes sense that there would be so many players trying to emulate that now in today's game because that's sort of what we all grew up on. It gets to a point where the answer has to come from scheme instead of personnel because like you can't get new players into the league fast enough to you know counteract this thing and so we went through for Tibbs we went through the you know the switching defense now and everything um and so I was looking at like just these these Clippers fast breaks and it almost has to just be the like a mandate you can't get beat down the floor by Blake Griffin if you're guarding him like you just have to sprint as hard as you can because if our point guard has to go meet him then like we're screwed because even (laughs) if even if you rotate out to Beverly then like we're just like slide 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 and like they're just gonna swing 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 and like they'll have an open shot 
And that's the advantage of having a guy who can who can pass. And, you know, I wanted to talk one last note on Griffin is how often do we see guys mid-career, like in the middle of their prime, just develop, like decide they're going to become a three-point shooter? Like that seems kind of odd at this stage of Griffin's career uh, so many years in. He's 28 this season. Uh, and, and yet he wasn't really taking that many threes as recently as two years ago. Only 3% of his field goal attempts were from the outside. He kicked it up to 12% last year. And then now, I guess, you know, in this new look Clippers scheme, he's been allowed to take more than a third of his shots from the outside. And it's, and it's worked so far. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a new thing um, that big men are just being asked to stretch the floor more. So the, the New York times had a very good story on Timothy Mozgov, uh, who is, Shooting threes this year. He's only about at about one a game. Uh, so he's not quite at Brooke Lopez level where he just had taken, I think, 33s for his whole career and then took 350-some last year. Um, but this is, uh, this is a thing that's been going on. Uh, coaches have been begging guys to just take that extra step back. And, you know, Kevin Garnett always threatened to, but, you know, never quite got there. Amari always threatened to, never quite got there. Josh Smith happily did it and um, was the worst three-point shooter in league they history one year. They had to beg him to stop <laughs> at one point. Yeah, no, you see guys like Marcus Gasol and, and like Kyle said with Brooke Lopez, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how guys get this good at it so quickly. There's other people that I'm looking at that seem like good candidates for it. Here in Chicago, uh, Robin Lopez, you know, reporters have joked with him like, well, your brother d- figured out how to do this. When are you going to do it? And honestly... Robin is one of the best mid-range shooters the Bulls have, and so he does kind of seem like a candidate to maybe do it. It seems like it takes these guys maybe an offseason or two to really pick up uh, enough skill with it to where it's game ready. But think about how crazy that is that guys can pick up a skill that quickly in just an offseason or so after having played this game for 15 or 20 years in some cases without ever having had to take that shot. Yeah, the the stretch fours of yesterday seem to come in maybe fully formed as that, like your Vladimir Radmanoviches and so forth, Richard Lewis types. Uh, and and these guys seem to be, first of all, better players in a lot of cases, certainly in Griffin's case, but also, you know, they, they didn't do this early in their career. And then, like you said, Chris, they picked it up. So I'm interested to see how many more of these stretch four types kind of organically appear mid-career uh, now that coaches are kind of emphasizing it more and more. So uh, let's move on to the last player that I wanted to talk about, uh, and he is the leader of the Orlando Magic, who are tied for the Eastern Conference lead right now at five wins and two losses, and that would be Aaron Gordon, who is a player that is kind of doing a mix of all of the two different things that we talked about Porzingis and Griffin doing. He's he's taking more threes. He's also knocking down a lot of threes uh, in maybe an uncharacteristic and unsustainable way. But he's also being used as more and more of a trigger man in, in their offense uh, and to great effect. So I'm curious what you guys have observed from, from Gordon so far and how sustainable we think that not only his play is, but maybe also the Magic as one of these surprising teams in the East so far. Gordon to me is like he's doing some things differently, but like the big thing is he's shooting four threes a game and making sixty percent of them, uh, which is just not going to happen. That's not going to hold up. No, he he shot far fewer over his, the rest of his career and was like a twenty eight percent shooter. So I mean, while the other two are just doing things differently and like the the results are telling, uh, this is just like yeah, let let's see what happens to the whole rest of your game when it's not being propped up by by this ridiculous shooting that def- defenses now have to respect, but. I mean, like, that is, that covers up a lot of sins, and, like, that gives you a lot more leeway and everything else. So, 
I think it's just really hard to to talk about the dude while while he's shooting like this. Right. Yeah, we're gonna have to see how much of this holds up. I, I'm I'm hopeful that some of it will hold up a little bit, but long term, I, I don't see him as being this three point marksman from outside. The the irony is that they wanted him to do this last year. Obviously, you're never gonna complain when someone's averaging more than twenty a game and hitting threes at that clip. But they moved him to small forward last year, and Frank Vogel did that, and it was a colossal mistake. They had too many big men on the roster. You remember they had Serge Ibaka at the time. They were trying to run Gordon out there as the three, Ibaka as the four, Vucevic as the five, and they just got mauled with that lineup. It prompted them really early on to say, we can't afford to keep Serge Ibaka. Let's trade him for whatever we can get. And so they make that deal, and it kind of reshaped the roster. They're able to put Gordon back at the four. Um, I, I wrote some stuff last year about how his dunk rate, uh, obviously is one of the best known dunkers in the league from his all-star game performance um, or all-star weekend performance. And he couldn't even really get to the basket to dunk last season because the floor was just so clogged. They had way too many bigs in their lineup. Biombo was there getting a lot of minutes with them as well. And so it's good to see him doing this. I'm just hopeful that he can sustain some of it. Even if he doesn't do all of it for the whole season, he's still a good player, and it's still the sort of progress that you want to see your young players making, that the Magic haven't had a young player make the sort of step in a long time. Yeah, the Magic, I think we talked about this going into the season, that they were this group of basically raw players that they'd been hoping for several seasons, that they would just one would make a breakthrough, or, or if they were lucky, a couple would make a breakthrough, and that they could actually uh, make a step forward that way. And it does seem like in, in some ways they have. They've gotten Gordon, Evan Fournier also playing a lot better, uh, and, and Jonathan Simmons, uh, who I think was kind of an NBA nerd favorite when he was with the Spurs is now getting maybe an expanded role with the Magic uh, this season. Uh, so maybe even if Gordon's shooting goes backwards, maybe the Magic can do something. I don't know. I'm I'm always excited about teams that uh, seem like they could be on the cusp if if they have you know players have breakouts and and make the East more competitive. Just we talked about it uh, going into the season about how bleak things look. They look a little less bleak now, and maybe uh, you know the Magic are a big part of that. I, the only thing, I mean, they uh, they obviously have been playing without Alfred Payton, who also kind of contributed in some ways to the lack of shooting on the floor. And so I wonder if not having him there and giving more of his minutes to other people, obviously Simmons being one of them, that they just have the floor a little bit more open. And if that helps them just a little bit on offense, I think Payton is a decent player, but his presence there, when you put him in a lineup with guys that other people don't think can shoot, yeah, it just clogs things too much sometimes for the minutes that he was getting. And on that note, like you have to wonder like what they would look like if they hadn't done that Ibaka deal and they just kept Sabonis, who is you know playing really well right now in Indiana and like just in a bigger role than he had in Oklahoma City. And like you know, surprise, a player plays better when he has you know more central role. But like he's the kind of guy who you know would pair well with Aaron Gordon. <laughs> Okay, so let's leave it there, and uh, we'll keep an eye on these power forwards and see how much they sustain their early season momentum as the season goes on, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see more exciting things from them uh, going forward. Okay, now we're going to move on to our small sample segment, but first a word from another sponsor. The days are getting shorter and the weather is finally cooling off. And nothing complements a crisp autumn day quite like a cup of coffee. But not just any coffee. I'm talking about coffee that's so delicious, so flavorful, that you realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your whole life. Blue Bottle Coffee. Simply put, 
Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee on the planet by working directly with growers all over the world. And talk about taking freshness seriously. Check this out. You place your order online and boom, within 48 hours, your beans are roasted and shipped right to your home. So your beans are at your door at peak freshness. No sitting on a store shelf for weeks. And you never have to worry about flavor because Blue Bottle has something for everyone's taste buds. From lighter, fruity flavors to the deep, chocolatey espresso one. So hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. And while you're there, be sure to check out their digital holiday store because Blue Bottle Coffee makes a great gift. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash L-A-B. All right, so let's wrap up the show with a segment that we like to call Small Sample. This is where we discuss a trend in the league that doesn't have a lot of data behind it but might prove meaningful before the end of the year. And this week's Small Sample is going to be brought to you by me. Uh, So I was digging through our ELO rating data, which is our power rating that we have for teams here at 538, and I noticed that it's not just our imaginations that it's been an odd start to the season with the Warriors having three losses and also the Grizzlies leading the West, also the Magic, as we just talked about. The numbers also bear out that this has just been a really strange season so far. Uh, and so when I was looking at ELO, I was looking at the winning percentage for favorites uh, compared to past seasons. And it turns out that we are going back to the merger at almost a low point for the first couple weeks of an NBA season in terms of favorites winning percentages uh, across the league. The only other times that they were lower were around about the mid-2000s, which was a very kind of weird time for the NBA also. But uh, I wanted to open this up for conversation about what do you guys think is causing all of this wackiness that we're seeing in the league, and is it something that we should just brace ourselves and and frankly enjoy over the rest of the season, or will sanity be restored uh, before we know it? I mean, so if you look at the list that uh, that Neil made up for us, like right at the top is Cleveland. So yeah, um, like and that one's just obvious. They had uh, Kyrie leave. They brought Isaiah Thomas in. Isaiah Thomas isn't playing, and the minutes that Kyrie was uh, getting are going to Derrick Rose and Dwayne Wade, and who have been bad, just bad. <laughs> but our numbers act- thought that the Cavs would be able to kind of weather that, even after taking into account the trade and Isaiah being out, and yet they still have lost a bunch of games as favorites. Are we talking uh, Elo, not Car- or Car- Carmelo, not just Elo? I think we're talking about whatever you want to talk about <laughs> at this point. When you look at Cleveland specifically, they've had guys that have just even considering all their their moves and their changes, guys that just haven't played very well. J.R. Smith is someone who, yes, I guess technically his role changed, but I mean his main role on this team is still the idea of knocking down threes, whether it's off the bench, whether it's a starter. Uh, doing that and playing decent perimeter defense. He's been really, really bad to start the season in the middle of that really awkward feud with Stephen A. Smith. But that's something that I'm sure Elo Carmelo would probably predict that he would shoot better. Um, And you factor that in with all the other changes, all the new people that are trying to just get used to playing with LeBron and this team. It's understandable why they've fallen off. But I actually think it's not only them, it's the other teams that have changed drastically this year. Boston has played much better lately, but they've probably dropped a couple games that people thought that they would win or expected that they could win. Obviously not having Gordon Hayward there. What are we supposed to make with them of them anyway? And obviously it seemed like Memphis, who 
changed the whole look of that team. No more Tony Allen, no more Zach Randolph, and the fact that they've kind of been world beaters in the Western Conference so far uh, with a very new-look team. I, I found that over time, teams that look a lot different are just really unpredictable because there's really no legitimate film you can watch of them. There's no expectation or baseline of what to expect from them because the lineups are totally different than what you saw before. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, like, some of the doormats that we thought were just going to roll over and, uh, you know, not win any games have won a few games to start the season, and that happens every year where a few teams, like, so Atlanta has picked up some wins that, you know, whatever, and that's not going to keep up at all. (laughs) So part of it is it's just early in the season, even though it has been, like, an especially weird early season. Okay, fair enough. I mean, there's a reason we call this the yeah. small sample. Uh, but I am, I do think there's something uh, with what you said, Chris, that there was just a flurry of off-season activity, I think abnormally so, compared with other seasons, and spread out across uh, maybe an abnormal number of teams. And so that's probably, if there is something here, to the extent that there is something real, that uh, it's feeding into it is there just were a lot of teams that were kind of high variance. We we didn't know what to expect of them and, and should have maybe had uh, a wide range of expectations for them going into the season. If anything, you would think that it would give certain teams a leg up you you would think off the bat that maybe a team like Houston especially without Chris Paul maybe they play better than what you'd expect a team like the Blazers or a team like Toronto maybe more than anybody else teams that kept their core together we we always talk about how do you know when to kind of let go of a team that is a 45 or 51 team but nothing more than that this is kind of where those teams should be able to rack up wins and quite frankly a team like Golden State, if their motivation is there, you would think this is – if they really want to go for something like 73 wins, this would actually be their opening to do something like that just because so many teams are brand new, don't really have all their parts figured out yet. Oklahoma City, Minnesota, teams with talent, but teams that really haven't delineated their roles yet or well to this point just because they're all so new to, to playing with each other. Okay, that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, guys, as always. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. We also receive production assistance from our intern, Daniel Levitt. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. And whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. We're on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. And you can also find us in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.